0: How much time have we spent asking the question? Is it our calling or just our context? Did we really hear the voice of God or have we just been shaped by our experiences? Are we just looking through our particular lenses? Our conversation today asks the question, what if we were never meant to separate the two? What if our calling has everything to do with our context? Could it be that God calls us to be fully who we are, where we are, with whom we've been called to dwell. Just like him. He came not as a transcendent being. He came as a baby born to a specific family, in a specific place, within a cultural context. And when we really think about it, he's giving us our calling. It's to love God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The mysterious equation of knowing and being known, loving and being loved, constantly needs rebalancing. Somehow as we allow ourselves to be known and loved in the fullness of who we are, we grow in capacity to know and love God and others in the fullness of who they are, to live into our calling in the world, not to transcend, Our culture, or our gender, or our experiences, or our limitations, but to do it fully as the person He made us for the sake of the people before us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Maros on how our calling is deeply connected to our context. I have here with me today, Dr. Susan Maros. Uh, She is a professor of Christian leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary, as well as the author of um, a relatively new book, Calling in Context, which is very significant in the conversation around calling and just kind of starting to follow more of your leadership. I just think your voice and posture in general um, is a real gift to this conversation. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: To get started, can you just talk a little bit about your own work journey, your own sense of calling, um, and kind of how your journey has brought you to the work that you're doing now?
1: Well, I think because we're talking about calling, it might be helpful to know that where I am is not where I thought I would be. When I was a teenager, I was a real serious musician and classical musician. And so that was my undergrad degree, was a performance major. Except that by the time I finished my degree, I had a sense that that's not what God had for me. And then I headed off to spend a number of years in a mission organization. I, at the time, I thought because of a number of different circumstances, because of a, of a really profound encounter I had with God at a, at a, um, at a prayer meeting, I, I had the sense of being called into leadership, but I thought leadership meant pastoral ministry. Like that was my assumption. That's what leadership is. Uh, So, so even heading off into a mission organization, that's still what I was thinking I was going to do was be in pastoral ministry. But then my life took another pivot and turn when an opportunity opened up to teach a class. I was now in my early thirties. I was towards the end of my MDiv and, and I loved teaching and, and I began to teach and I, and so I've been teaching ever since. Uh, not at the same institution. And I've made some shifts in that. And and I did uh, after quite a few years of teaching, I went back to school and got my PhD. So there's there was kind of a professional development that happened in my 30s and 40s into my early 50s. But um I, I mentioned that to say that that it wasn't I, I can I can look back now and tell a straight-line story and say how even in my years in in the mission organization i was involved in the training school you know so I, there was that incl- that that draw towards people formation and towards teaching that was there and even before that you know it, even as a as, even as a teenager involved in my church you know it was um my my very first experience preaching was as a a Teenager preaching on a youth Sunday, you know, and being involved in the church, being involved in it was a small church, so it was kind of all hands on deck, you know, and, and have having opportunities to lead. I can look back and point to teaching kinds of things that were there, you know, so I, I can tell a straight line story, in in retrospect, but the story wasn't straight in the living of it. I can look back and see, oh, clearly, God was leading me step by step, uh, but in the middle of it, it didn't it didn't seem at all clear. It wasn't like okay, I'm
0: gonna do this, and then it's gonna right. take me here, and then eventually I'll become a professor, and it's all.
1: Yep, yep. And I was, and I was as inclined uh, as anyone to say to have a plan, you know, to be strategic, to have it laid out. This is what I'm gonna do, um, and I still am. It is good to be reminded. Yeah, that's not how I. Expect experience life, is it? No, it's not. So, and I preach this to my students all the time, right? They, they do what's in front of you, be faithful to what's in front of you and trust that God will lead you step by step. It will make sense in retrospect in a way it doesn't make sense now. Uh, and, and that's fine to preach it when I'm feeling super comfortable with where I am. <laughs> but then it's another thing, you know, when I'm sensing as I am now in my own, in my own formation, It's it's, I've been teaching for 25 years. I love it. And there's also this restlessness in my soul to say, okay, God, what's the next thing? What's the next stretch? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of, oh, I get to preach to myself again. <laughs> okay, next faithful thing. What's the next faithful thing? And trust step-by-step uh, step, that evolution will continue to happen as God continues to work. Mm, it's so good. It's, ho- it's hard. I- I'm
0: curious. This is, um, well, I really want to talk about, about your book, Calling in Context, but- when you have that restlessness, but you want to steward what's in, f- in front of you well, what are, like, how do you balance that? Not just ignoring that sense that some, a change is coming or that you're longing for something different, but also finding contentment in the what's in front of you.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. I am definitely in the midst of that. Of Well, I, I, I do feel that faithfulness is a huge component of our ongoing discipleship and formation as the people of God. And that is a huge chunk of what to me is calling, you know, that, that it's it's way more about God's invitation to us to participate with God in, in God's work in the world than it is about what career should I have or what job should I do hmm. and and to be faithful to what's in front of me, to what's in my hands, to what I've committed to to do that faithfully as I acknowledge where there is stirring. As you describe it and as you
0: write and as you speak, it just is so much more fluid and holistic and embodied and connected to the person you are rather than this Oh, I'm frustrated, or I feel this way, but God hasn't called me anywhere else. And this is what I'm responsible for. So I just have to keep doing it almost like a powerlessness. Yeah. And I, it's almost it feels like to me and something I've experienced is in naming that holy discontent. It almost makes me more present to the work in front of me because it's almost this awareness of, you know, it's like when you think about your kids growing up and you're like, they're not going to be little for- forever, you know, <laughs> and you're like, I need to yeah. focus right now on them or whatever it might be. It's an acknowledging like there is something stirring. Yeah. It just makes you more aware of yourself and able to yes. engage, I think all of life, but I don't, I don't think that's usually how we think about calling. Yeah. So, um, which I think is part of why you wrote, wrote your book calling in context, Can you talk about experiences or conversations that were significant leading up to, you know, deciding you were going to write this book?
1: Yeah. Well, I've I've always been interested in, in, in leader formation, you know, Mm -hmm. so how does God work in people's lives to shape and form us across a lifetime, you know, even, even before we're born, the context we're born into is so significant for how we're shaped and formed the the unique person that we are and what we have uniquely to contribute to God's work um and and who we've been made to be you know that there's something that's been formed in us uh, in our family context in our national cultural context in our geographical context you know in my racial ethnic cultural identity and my socioeconomic status and class that affects my shaping you know, like my gender there's so much yeah. that shapes who I am and how I encounter the world and, and to see that God is at work in that. So that, that was an important part of my work as a, as an educator. And even before that, um, you know, just this interest in all the ways that God does that kind of work, you know, in people's lives. So, so fascinating. And to be involved with people in the process of discerning, oh, wait, hang on. God has been at work in this and here's, I'm recognizing some patterns here of of that work and what that means for me. Um, so that was always of interest to me for the entirety of the time that I taught doing my PhD. So I, I worked on calling as the, the focus of my PhD, mainly because I was working with a population of students who were adult students. So these were mostly um, late twenties to say fifties, the majority of them. I had, I had your traditional college, 18 year old college student who was like, who am I going to be when I grow up? But then I, what I was seeing was that twenty-eight-year-olds and thirty-eight-year-olds and forty-eight-year-olds and fifty-eight-year-olds asked that same question: "Who am I supposed to be when I grow up?" Kind of, mm-hmm. you know. There's recurring kinds of cycles or events that happen in people's lives that that cause them to ask questions again about, okay, who am I? Who am I? And where am I supposed to be connected in the world? And and what has God called me to? Um, and at least in the population I was working with, um, as a Pentecostal group, there was a strong expectation of to know the way I know I'm called is because God speaks directly to me and I have a clear revelation of what it is I'm supposed to do. So strong, strong expectation, lots of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard clearly from God, or I thought I heard clearly from God, but then now I know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. So maybe I didn't actually hear from God and oh no. And this, this, this profound um, sense of, vulnerability. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the wrong choice and my life's going to result in nothing. And, you know, as if God somehow standing around with a checklist, you know, oh, nope, made the wrong decision. Can't use you, scratch you off the list. You know, Mm -hmm. as if somehow God's power and creativity and grace only extend to us if we do things perfectly somehow, you know, make the right decision. Like God can't use, if we make a bad decision, like God throws up God's hands and says, Oh, no, I, I was planning to use you. But now I don't know what I can do. You know, oh. you know it's, it, it, we just we don't say that. But that's the kind of anxiety we have. So that was the context that provoked me to look more closely at calling in my in my doctoral work. Um, and as part of that work, I became much more aware of how much culture plays a role in our theology. Like I, I come from a conservative evangelical background. You know, I assume Bible is my basis and, and I still value scripture. You know, that still is my foundation. But what I was realizing more and more is that how we read scripture is shaped by our cultural context and and how we think about calling is shaped by our cultural context, the mm-hmm. cultural assumptions. It's not that we bring a biblical model and apply it to life, even though that's how we think we do. You know, the reality is, is that we even what we identify as a biblical model is based on culture and context and, and life experience. And so that was the something of the aha of the doctoral process was, was grappling with, wow, context really matters in really profound ways. And that, that also caused this sort of spiritual disorientation of a sort, because I had come from a position of God's eternal truths of scripture are the foundation for our lives. And it's like, well, Hang on. What does that mean if we bring our cultural interpretation to identifying what those eternal truths are? What do I do with that? And it took. It was disorienting, but I I ended up in a in a space of realizing, well, God has always worked in human cultures. Mm, Like that's the entire testimony of Scripture, is that God steps into real, concrete human contexts, uses cultural practices that that god like unpacks and and reorients and reinterprets for us to understand god's character better but still uses human language and human practices and human culture critiques some appropriates others builds in new ones puts them together in different ways and if that's what god is doing throughout scripture and if the testimony of the end of time as we see in revelation is all cultures all ethne all peoples standing before the throne of god like i i kind of think i assumed I knew Revelation 7-9 was there, but I sort of assumed everybody was speaking English, you know, and singing <laughs> the worship songs of my church. You know, I made those assumptions because yeah. that's that was my like we'll all speak English. Well, no, maybe, maybe Babel will be reversed. It's not that we won't we'll all have one language, maybe we'll have all of our languages. It's just that we'll no longer have distrust of one another, we'll no longer have misunderstanding of one another. You know, we'll be able to appreciate the rich tapestry and variety of the distinctiveness of each of our cultures and contexts and, and what that brings to the collective and how much, how we see God in, in new ways when we when we see God through the eyes of another culture and experience, you know, when we read scripture, even now, you know, when we read scripture with our brothers and sisters from another context, you know, the things that I see in scripture, it's like, wow, I never saw that. I read that passage, I don't know how many times over the last years of my life. And and I never thought of it that way. but But now I have a richer understanding of God uh, because of it. So all of that was a developing thing. And as I, was back in the classroom and continuing to teach, you know, everybody, when they'd hear, oh, you're studying, you're studying calling. Oh, you're going to tell us how to know our call. You know, (laughs) when are you going to, when are you going to write your book? And I'm like, I can't, I can't write a book with yet another method of knowing exactly this is here's step one, two, three, four, five of exactly how, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do in your life. Like there are plenty of those books. Yeah, They can be helpful. Go buy them, read them, use what's helpful don't use what's not helpful. It's like, I can't write that book. And so it took a while to get around to, but this is what I need to say, that your context matters, Mm -hmm. that God is in that and using that. And you have something distinctive, you individually and you collectively, Mm -hmm. your family, your people have something distinctive to contribute to God's work in the world, distinctively because of your context and who you are in that context. So here, let me let me give you some thoughts about how to reflect on that and to begin mm-hmm. to identify that. I'm particularly mindful of people who came from similar background to me, you know, conservative white evangelical Christian in the United States. You know, I'm I just assume that God is white. Like I would never have said it that of way, course. ever, yeah. ever, yeah. ever, right? But but I assumed that that God saw the world like I saw the world. And so, can we start to unpack that and be conscious of it instead of assuming? Mm. and and then to i see what it is that is our our gift and our contribution as a result of the distinctiveness of who we are. Mm. And
0: what did you find in terms of, you know, comparing kind of a white american culture and how they approach calling versus other cultures? What were some of the stark differences?
1: Probably the main one that's the easiest to see possibly is is around individualism. Mm. We, we in the United States, we tend to build our culture and our groups, assuming the individual is the building block. So our groups are collections of individuals. Yeah. You know, we think about church that way. You know, I want to find my church home, you know, and it's about me finding my community that I feel connected to. And we come together because we collectively feel uh, a bunch of individual people coming together or even you know several years ago I- I'm now in a, in a latina church so i I, f- I felt it was important a number of years ago to to be in a church where I'm the minority and where i'm I'm I submit to the leadership the spiritual direction of people of color so I'm in a latina church and and a couple years ago my pastor preached a series on the Lord's Prayer and I'm like how many series on the Lord's Prayer have I heard in my lifetime? But he got to give us this day our daily bread, and what the revelation was to me was he was saying, "This is our this is our community's daily bread. We are praying for our community hmm. that our community, many of whom are marginalized, and and at the time we were in the midst of COVID, so so there were working class folks who. Who were really suffering and having a hard time putting food on the table and having yeah. a hard time paying rent because of the circumstances of the of the pandemic, right? So we're praying, give us our, give our community our daily bread. And I had never realized I'd always assumed that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, is each of us individually are praying for our individual daily bread, and we're just doing it together. Therefore, we say our, right? Yeah. So there's this collective sense that. By and large, at least Euro Americans, you know, for us it, and, and, and in the United States in general, that we, we don't really have, right? We're strongly, it's about me. When, when I talk about calling, it's about how do I know what I'm supposed to do with my life, and my gifts, and my capacities. And yeah, we think about it in terms of serving, serving the common good, but it's how do I serve the common good? Yeah, that, that the individual is the priority. A lot of other cultures around the world, as well as I see it in the scripture, now that I have really thought about it a lot more, that the scripture is very collectivist as well. Mm, you know, yeah. God calls a people. Israel was called as a people. And yes, God was concerned for individuals, but he wasn't calling a bunch of individuals together. He was calling a people. So there's this very collectivist sense. And we have, you know, Jesus in Matthew 25, when it's the sheep's and, parable of the sheeps and the goats, it's the people are called. And the people are separated, not individuals are separated. It's the peoples that are separated into sheep and goats. So there's the, this thread of collectivism that's in scripture that's hard for us to see because U.S. Americans are so like we're we're so shaped by an individualistic framework. So when I was talking, uh, an example, a specific concrete example, I was talking with a group of pastors from South Africa, and this was a group from the northern part of South Africa. So it's a tribal people that are kind of historically Northern part of South Africa, Southern part of what's current modern day Namibia. And there was this group of pastors and we were sitting around the table and uh, we were sharing our stories, right? And uh, there was a phrase that there was, I don't know, six or eight people and and everyone used this phrase, when I received my call, hmm. when I received my call and it, it, around the table as they're telling the story. Well, I had with me a colleague, um, a German woman who uh, had worked for a number of years in Ghana, you know, so that's a different cultural context, but at least she had been in Africa. Right. And I had, I had made a short trip, but you know, I don't, I don't have,
0: yeah, I still context. have my U
1: S American framework. And so afterwards she said to me, now, did you understand what they were saying? I was like, I think so. I'm thinking when they said, when I received my call, it's when I knew I was called to X. Yeah. And she's like, no, 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 no. What they were saying was when the community determined that this was my call. Hmm. You know, so there was this very distinctive collectivist. Yes, they're individuals seeking to discern and to know and to understand and to hear God, but there's a much stronger sense of the community is the one that discerns what your call is. Hmm. Uh, that yeah, I, I, I had that's an example of I had a hard time interpreting what they were saying because I was hearing it through the filters of my individualist culture. And I suggest, you know, I've done the same to scripture where I read individual one-on-one. I, I focus on the call stories where God says to Moses, you know, get up mm-hmm. and go talk to Pharaoh, or God says to to Paul, I'm going to send you as to testify before kings, you know, that we focus on the individual and we don't see the many, many, many instances as well as contexts that's collective in scripture. Even the you in the New Testament,
0: yeah. most of you is, it's y'all. It's plural. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a pl- it's a plural you. And, but we're never like, I would never read it that way coming from the, the, yeah, the cultural context that I come from. Yeah. And that, I just think it's so powerful that the whole, like our whole heritage as the people of God is from an enta- like a nation being formed um, mm-hmm. to honor, serve, and worship God, and in which people found individual callings depending on their their tribe or depending on their whatever it might be. But it was all in order that they together as a people would um, yeah be a light to the nations around them and form a mm-hmm. society that reflected God. And it feels <laughs> like how do we – even get anywhere close to experience calling in a communal way. Um, Those of us who are coming from this very individual culture, both experiencing it in terms of the community, either affirming or directing our call. And then also having a community in which our calling is embedded that we're serving, you know, I think oftentimes we just have a job and we don't even – we don't even meet oftentimes or see or experience the people that our work serves. So I'm just curious if you have, have you um, come up with any ways that some of this gap can be collapsed or that we can learn from other cultures in this?
1: Well, I yes. and And the caveat I want to give is that I do think that the testimony that God cares about you individually, like that affirmation. Mm-hmm. is part of what we bring as a gift. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that I, I'm not negating that. Yeah. So can we, can we celebrate that? And also say that there's something I have to learn from my sisters and brothers and how could I do that? So that's my caveat. One, one thing is worship with people from a different culture, mm-hmm. like be, be willing to uh, engage in a community. And maybe, maybe that's I've done that, and I've done that purposefully, uh, and I recommend that for other people. And and maybe that's something you need to step towards, right? It might not be. Do you just pick up and leave the church or the community you're in and go to a different community? But it but at least start to pay attention to what what are the other churches in my town or within a twenty mile radius of me or something? You know, depending on you know if you're in the city, if you're in an urban area, probably there are a ton yeah. of. Congregations that are from a whole lot of different places in the world. So, and, and and there might you might be located someplace else where there's less so, but probably there's more than you realize. You know, so so be willing to to visit.
0: I have a, a friend who um, spent some time in Latin America and just has been shaped by fellowship and worship with Christians um, from other other countries and cultures and it's interesting to experience some of the ways she approaches her call and and some of these questions um, differently, I think because of those experiences. And lately she's been in a new new season of kind of discernment. And she just asked me to speak into where do you see my giftings or where do you see, you know, me playing a part in this season of my life. Um, And she did that with some other people that she trusted. And I was, I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> I don't just have to sit, which is me and my journal and spin my wheels, like <laughs> trying to, you know, go crazy, connecting all the dots of my life and figuring it out myself. Um, so I, yeah, it just makes me think even those simple things of just um, leaning in to community and different perspectives and, and people around us that know us and love us to walk with us in that, to open ourselves up to the communal nature of it. Okay. I have a question about thinking about calling in terms of what do I want to be when I grow up? Like you said, that doesn't stop at 18 or 21 or um, even postgraduate (laughs) um, degrees, but how do you see a difference in how sort of younger people are are entering this conversation of calling now versus maybe 20 years ago um, in your teaching?
1: Yeah, I think now um when I'm finding kind of younger millennials, older Gen Z, um if those terms are familiar they might be super US terms, but um that okay, two couple things. One is one is that um particularly for the millennials that I've talked to and so some of them are getting older, they're not they're not the 18-year-olds now, they're the 28-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, more so. Um they they've already... I, I, what I've heard from them is, is kind of a, a a fatigue around this question, Hmm. even young, you know, this sense of, man, there's just so much pressure. I'm supposed to go out and change the world and I'm supposed to find a job I love. And I don't really know what I love. And, oh, there's just so much pressure. I just want one person said to me, I just want to quit and go be a barista, you know, (laughs) because it's just, it's just too much pressure. So that that's one thing I've seen. Another thing I've seen, Um, some with younger millennials, certainly with Gen Z coming up um, is a far greater concern about issues of justice. Mm. And so there is perhaps even more of a collectivist, maybe of a collectivist concern of if, if we have, if we're not paying attention to the marginalized, you know, if we're, if we're assuming more is better um, power position, acquisition if we're assuming those values at least at least a lot of the younger folks that I'm talking to they're looking at their parents and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents and looking at the kind of the mega church model the very corporate production oriented mega church model and say thank you no thank you like hmm. I just don't even I that's not I don't find that consistent with how I understand God. I don't find that consistent with Scripture. Um, I don't. I don't fit in that. I don't want to be a part of that. And you're you're not paying attention to my friends, my the person next to me who has a marginalized identity, um, and you're writing them out of the narrative. And so I'm I'm more concerned about that. So th- I'm hearing that, and maybe that's just the the young people that I happen to be encountering. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I can't speak for all young people everywhere in the United States, but that that's definitely a trend. Um, meanwhile, I still hear from young people that pressure of, okay, I, I still have to figure out a job. Like, what am I going to do that's going to put a roof over my head? Hmm. Um, with the additional stresses of COVID and the implications that that has had for yeah. the job market, with the development of this gig economy, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's, I I know a lot of young people are, well, let's see, I do Uber Eats and I have a, I have a TikTok channel and I'm doing this, this, you know, I I do music on the side and I, you know, they have all these side gigs kind of a thing. And so Mm -hmm. then there's both the sense of pressure of, oh, I'm supposed to figure out the one thing. My parents are expecting me to figure out the one thing. And I don't know what that is. And how am I going to, earn a living. And they look at a lot of young folks also looking at things like, well, climate change. I hear young people say things like, well, the earth isn't going to be habitable in 75 years anyway. So why bother? And I'm thinking, whoa, back up the bus. yeah." (laughs) Okay. okay, Talk about dystopian. Yikes. Um, I think maybe we should have another conversation about that. So there's this mix of kind of social cultural dynamics that are shifting their expectations while at the same time, there's still that, how am I going to earn a living? And I have the, the sense of expectation from my family and from my community that I'm supposed to name this thing, this one thing that I'm going to do. And I don't know what that is. And Mm. I just feel overwhelmed by it. Um, Those are definitely some, some things I see with younger folks. Yeah. Mm.
0: I talked to uh, one of my cousins who's um, quite a bit younger as well and just asked him, you know, his perspectives on work and among his peers. And one thing he mentioned was, you know, with all these influencers, people like making a living off of, you know, being famous and traveling the world and it's hard to be like, but that could be me, you know, because it feels so much more accessible than it used to be. There's, yep. it's just, there's so many different ways of, like you said, the the gig economy, like so many different ways of making a living. Like, it's not like I need to pick a trade. I need to get, yep. you know, my apprenticeship in that trade, secure employment. And then I can, I can shift a little bit within that trade, but like, this is like my way in yeah. I just imagine it's got to feel overwhelming to just have so many options feel like they're right in your face.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So we all can't sit down and have coffee with you and have you solve our issue of calling. Cause we know you would do that in one, in an hour coffee session. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know your, your, um, your encouragement is the opposite. It's very much the slow process of mm-hmm of learning about ourselves and others becoming aware of our context environment our own stories and then considering right now um yeah as you said before like how is god calling me to be faithful and what am i what am i sensing so but i, I would like to give you a couple scenarios just just to here, some thoughts, some questions you would you would give to someone in this situation. So the first is um, going back to the college student, a sophomore in college. So they're kind of in their their second year. They're finishing up their gen eds. Um, they've already changed their major twice, and they just can't seem to find confidence in one path. And they're just going crazy, and and they're trying to. You know, they're just asking God, like, why aren't you making it clear to me? Why I just I just need you to tell me what direction to go. And then my parents are, you know, on me for the tuition bill. So what are some questions or some things you would ask them to slow
1: down and consider? Yeah. For for that, for that young person, what immediately comes to my mind is where where is that pressure coming from? That pressure to have the one thing, right? So so that would be sort of where I would explore with them. So, and even concretely, you know, get out a piece of paper and put what would God have me do at the top and then draw a line down the middle and on the one side. Okay. So what are all the expectations of your parents and Mm -hmm. your community and your family and your friends and the culture, you know, like, can you put that, put into words what you think they're expecting of you in terms of that question of what would God have me do? Right. And, and can you Put it down in black and white. So my my parents expect me to get a good job that will support me, or my or maybe it's more specific. My parents really want me to become an engineer. My parents really want me to, you know. So so for some people in their families, like there's a very concrete direction that there's an expectation. And so write those things down. What is your community expecting from you, right? And then on the on the right hand side of that, you know, what are the internal pressures, Hmm. like. Can you name your anxiety? Oh, I'm a, I'm afraid. Um, I, I'm just not. Other people know, and I don't know, and I'll never figure it out. Or I'm afraid I'll um, I just never be good enough to do anything. Or you know, what what is it? Allow those things to bubble up and put them down concretely. In part, like I suggest, doing some kind of exercise like that and putting it because when you see it written, it it mm. takes it from that realm of swirling anxiety to something concrete can you name what it what that anxiety is yeah. concretely what is that expectation what are the frameworks that are that are pressing into you to say you need to know exactly what it is you're supposed to do well why okay so then then can can you from that conceive of the possibility that god is at work and again do, what is the thing in front of you mm. like Maybe there's some value in finishing a degree or, or maybe there is, maybe, maybe you need to, what are there work opportunities or internship opportunities? Is there some kind of, is there something that stirs in you? Is there any sort of spark anywhere that you could get curious about? You know, okay, yes, these are all the pressures. You've named all the pressures, but now can you, can you make a choice to like, even if you pick up the paper, fold it in half and set it aside. Mm-hmm. and say to your anxiety, I, I know you're trying to look out for me. You know, there are all these things. I, I want you to sit there on the side and be quiet for a minute and notice, okay, what is there any spark? Do I have something that's of interest? What is the f- next faithful thing in front of me? Mm-hmm. Um, because what I know now that I did not know as an 18 year old wanting to you know change the world um, is that it's going to come with time. Mm-hmm. It will evolve. You're going to be okay. You know, you, you'll make some missteps and you'll learn from those too. It's going to be okay. But it's really hard to trust that, you know, when you're 19 and a sophomore and, you know, you feel that pressure to get the stuff done, but, yeah. but can you, if you, can you make it concrete so that now you can leave some space for, mm-hmm. okay, what is that? The thing you're doing right now that is actually faith being faithful. Mm. I, I imagine
0: when you were that list of pressures, it's like when they're all unnamed, it feels like a thousand pounds, but each yeah. one's maybe 10 pounds, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. And yeah. you can take them off and just sort of set them to the side. And it's not just, yeah, this overwhelming sense of pressure. Yeah, I think that that naming process is really, that is really good. And yeah, what <laughs> I think it's a terrifying thing to have the permission to ask the question of like, what do I actually want? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do I enjoy? What What are the things about me um, that are unique? And yeah. yeah, what would it look like to just explore those things?
1: And, and it can be really hard to know. So, so try stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You're not making a 10-year commitment. You know, get involved in a club or, or volunteer for a ministry or, you know, something you know, like try it. Yeah. And and then you may you may discover, oh, I really love that. You may discover, okay, that's not for me. You know, <laughs> you try lots of stuff. Say in yes to kids? opportunities. Nope,
0: not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. How about let's imagine a woman in her, let's say like mid 30s, maybe she had a professional um career and was was kind of climbing the ladder and then decided to uh kind of pivot when she had young kids at home and was just doing, doing different work, but now she's feeling the call back into something a little bit, a little bit more, more, um, full time or, um, but it doesn't feel like going, going back to what she did before is the right answer. Mm -hmm. How, where does she start in kind of almost rebuilding her sense of vocation, um, beyond her home in the season of life?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, dynamic. There's some, there's some, let me start that one again. There's some particularities for vocational formation among women, mm-hmm. um, particularly in faith contexts, and especially if you're in a in a more conservative or evangelical faith context. So, for some of us, and this was true for me for a season in my life, you know, I I had more of the I was taught implicitly, not so much overtly, but implicitly that somehow if i married and had children that, that now becomes my call and as if somehow everything else about me becomes null and void while i while i'm a mother and an important part for me and for other women for whom that is the case is to realize you no know, the whole of me you know i i i'm a complete integrated unit and mm. i my calling is lived out the particularities of my calling are lived out. Yes. In my home and with my children and in other relationships as well. So in other contexts. So what, for, for me personally, you know, my sense of call to develop leaders, well, that shapes how I parented my kids, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that shaped how I was involved in my church, you know, so it wasn't just, I only develop leaders in my role as a, as a professor, you know, I, that, that's central to my sense of who I am. So that would be one question. You know, if I was sitting with that, with that woman over coffee, it was kind of, so tell me about what's, what's your most fundamental sense of purpose, Mm -hmm. not role, not occupation. Like what, what could you identify if there's one thing you could do for Jesus? And you were guaranteed all of the skill and the capacity and the time and the talent and the money and the support and the resources, everything you needed. What, what's that kind of one thing that you mm-hmm. would really press into that you would want to do most? And can you identify that and then start to think strategically and creatively, how do you already do that? Mm-hmm. You know, how is that the roles, all the roles that you have as as mom, as a community member, as you know, in the employment that you have, how, how is that being expressed? How was that being expressed in your previous career? You Mm -hmm. know, what was it about your previous occupation that is reflective of that? And so how much you think creatively about what might be next steps. Um, And particularly it, as we're in our, in our thirties and forties, I think that's a, a time for all people that Developmentally, we're developing gifts, we're developing, we're acquiring skills, we're, we're honing the ways that we do things, um, mm-hmm. we're, we're developing our kind of unique methodologies in the, in the careers that we're in you know, our particular focus or our collection, like how, how our, how our abilities all come together, our natural inclinations and our, our gifts all come together for those particularities. I think that's all exploration that happens in our thirties and forties as a whole, in general, whatever role or occupation we're in, you know, yeah. whether, whether you're, whether you're primarily you're, you're parenting small people or you're, you know, you're planting a church or you're teaching or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, or you're, you're, all, all kinds of occupations. I'm trying to stay away from some of our stereotypes of it's like church is the top. And I'm trying to stay away from that. Um, <laughs> you know, what, whatever it is, you know, we're in marketing or we're a podcaster, or, you know, whatever it is. And so for that, that in thinking strategically in development, are there kind of, is there an area of skill acquisition hmm. that would be really beneficial? Or is there an area of project development? You know, if I acquired you know, so I'm a freelance writer um, and I, I, I'm not sure what the next thing is, but I want to develop something more constructive. Well, do you want to go say into um, content production with something like YouTube or, Mm -hmm. uh, or TikTok or something, you know? So maybe there are some skills that you can acquire there uh, and, and observation about that, or is it another direction? You know, do you, is it more formal? Is there, I'm like making things up. You know, maybe maybe you want to move towards being an editor. And so, mm-hmm. you know, kind of exploring, being curious, investigating, well, what training do editors receive? You know, what skills do editors have? Do I have those? Is there some other skill acquisition I might do? So, is mm-hmm. that get to the core. If I could do anything for Jesus, what would I do? And then being strategic and mindful of I've already acquired a bunch of skills. I've had a bunch of experience. Kind of what what can I add to that that's in front of me accessible for me to do that would really set me up mm-hmm. to to have this merging of these things for another season mm-hmm. that is yet to emerge for me.
0: That's so helpful because it's not, I think that situation can often feel like starting from scratch, but mm-hmm. the way you're framing it and encouraging, it's not from scratch at all. It's actually- totally building on the person that we've always been and the things we've always been doing and yeah just again this fluid continual process okay the last scenario is a couple uh let's say that they are you know in their early 60s and they're approaching retirement but they don't want to just stop cold turkey with work the the current job isn't sustainable you know beyond retirement so they want to start doing meaningful work that they can continue in some capacity.
1: Yeah. So what, what kind of questions should they be asking? Yeah. That season of life is often can be provoking reflection, can be asking questions about legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is it that you have contributed to the world? And what is it that you still have left to do? You know, how, how do you round that off in a sense? Mm. You know What else might there be um, in terms of other avenues of that kind of work, perhaps uh, non-compensated? So if you're retirement and you're in a socioeconomic position where you don't have to have an income, are there ways of contributing that in mentoring and volunteering and and being engaged in other ways? But but before the the, the particularities of the strategy, I, I I would want to ask about that legacy. You know, what is your mm. sense of the gift that you've given to the world in your life thus far, and and what feels yet un? It's not yet finished. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and what would it look like to to think about that? You know, how. Is with your family members and your children, you know, as they're young adults and and they're merging in their own life, are there things, ways in which this very different parenting season when you parent adult children, that's very different than parenting young kids? You know, is there something about that that's central to your sense of purpose, your sense of what you're on the planet for? Is there, what is it about your work? Maybe, maybe your work was primarily, I worked and to provide for my family, but is there something in the work like that's legitimate? And you did a particular thing to provide for your family. You know why? What about that thing? And is there something in that that speaks to a, a, a contribution that you're making to the community, to your family, to the to the world, um, with the skills that you've acquired mm. in that in that work context, or with the Resources that you've acquired, and so thinking in terms of legacy, what is that? What is that legacy, and and how how is it that you're stewarding that for the next generation? Whether that's your own children or that's your community, this you're now among the elders. So how are you doing that eldering work mm-hmm. um, to bless the generation that's that's coming along behind?
0: Hmm. Dr. Maros, this has just been a great conversation, and. Thank you for your faithfulness to follow um, your sense of calling and just provide frameworks for people to find themselves fully in God's story. Yeah, with their kind of identity and culture and the fullness of who they are intact and knowing that they can join God uniquely um, in the work that he's doing Yeah, in the world, in and around them. Um, Yeah, it's been a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about us or find more resources, you can visit our website, surgenetwork.com, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. If you have a question, you can also reach out by email, info at